Today begins the second unconstitutional trial of Donald Trump. This is going to be the Tom Brady of Senate trials, the GOAT, the greatest of all time, the greatest number of constitutional violations in one day in the United States Senate. Count them. You'll hear how many violations are being committed in the Senate today on The Der Show. Today begins the second unconstitutional impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump. I say unconstitutional. I think every one of our impeachment trials from the very beginning, every impeachment trial against the president and uh, former president has been unconstitutional. We have never properly used the Constitution for impeachment purposes. The only proper constitutional attempt at impeachment was the one against Richard Nixon, because he did, in fact, commit high crimes and misdemeanors. He committed destruction of evidence, obstruction of justice, you name it, he committed it. And it's all out there, laid out in the articles of impeachment, drafted in part by Hillary Clinton, who was then a young uh, law graduate at the time working for uh, the committee. But every other impeachment of a president, starting with President Johnson in uh, the 1860s and then continuing through with Bill Clinton and now two against uh, Donald Trump, have been unconstitutional. Uh, This one is the most unconstitutional. This is GOAT. This is the greatest of all time. This is the Tom Brady of unconstitutionality, all rolled up into one. Uh, Today, we will see so many unconstitutional acts committed by one Senate. First, putting them on trial at all. The Constitution does not permit putting a former president on trial. If it did, you could put Nikki Haley on trial uh, tomorrow and impeach her from being the U.S. representative to the United Nations. You could put Jimmy Carter on trial. You could put Bill Clinton on trial. So, number one, it's unconstitutional to put him on trial. Number two, to put him on trial is a bill of attainder. It is a trial of a U.S. citizen by the Senate that carries with it consequences, namely disqualification. That fits beautifully into the criteria set out by the court in the Brown case, the Lovett case, you name it, you can look them up as to what constitutes a bill of attainder. I know I edited the first major law review article on bills of attainder in the Yale Law Journal in 1963 or 1964. Uh, The man who wrote that article, great, great constitutional law professor John Hart Ely, um, went on to be a law clerk on the Supreme Court And then he drafted the opinion in the case that incorporated many of the elements in the article that I helped to edit. So it's an area I know well, a bill of attainders, and this fits clearly into the bill of attainders. So that's uh, already a couple of constitutional violations. Now we get to the core constitutional violation. You cannot punish or create consequences for an American citizen for the exercise of a constitutionally protected speech. And the speech that President Trump made uh, is completely constitutionally protected under the Brandenburg principle. Just compare it to the Brandenburg speech itself. Um, Clarence Brandenburg, Brandenburg called for revengeance against senators. He he demanded that people march on the Capitol, not immediately, but later. He called for the Jews to be sent back to Israel and the blacks sent back to Africa. And he was surrounded by people with guns, uh, with Ku Klux Klan and neo-Nazi uh, symbols. Uh, Supreme Court Nine nothing, constitutionally protected, and yet all these scholars say 
the president's speech not not only isn't it constitutionally protected, but as I said yesterday, uh, I'll, I'll read it again because people just don't believe it. I got so many emails of people not believing it. Any First Amendment defense raised by President Trump's attorneys would be legally frivolous, not only legally frivolous, but, quote, no reasonable scholar or jurist would offer this defense. Well, I'm a reasonable scholar. I'm a jurist. I taught for 50 years at Harvard. I believe this is a not only reasonable defense, I think it's a winning defense and a defense that every civil libertarian should support. You cannot impeach a president based on a speech that's constitutionally protected. The speech the president made calling for people to demonstrate and go to the Capitol peacefully and patriotically clearly was not an incitement. He didn't incite, he invite. He invited. It wasn't an incitement, it was an invitation. He urged people to go. People do that all the time. I think the Trump team maybe will be actually playing excerpts from tapes of um, Democrats and others making similar speeches. I mean, the worst of them was by uh, Congresswoman uh, Waters, who urged people to interfere with people's rights, to stop them from eating, to confront them, to get in their face. Uh, suggesting even violent confrontations, perhaps constitutionally protected. I think so. That's a close case. But I think it's constitutionally protected. Other Democrats using language similar to the language used by former President Trump. I was asked on the Hannity show last night, didn't I think that all of those things said by the Democrats are are not constitutionally protected? And that, that was the implication of the question. And my answer was, no, they're all constitutionally protected. The First Amendment is very broad and very wide and should be construed very broadly as it was during the golden age of the First Amendment between 1960 and 2000, a golden age that's become tarnished in recent years and most tarnished in the past uh, four years. So we're going to see constitutional violation after constitutional violation. And then I'm hearing now that there may be some effort to try to circumvent the Constitution by saying even if you can't get two-thirds to convict him and just find him guilty, maybe all you need is half a majority to disqualify him. Well, no, no, that's not the way it works. You can only disqualify if you convict, and conviction requires two-thirds. So we'll see if they try to press that unconstitutional interpretation of the provisions uh, for impeachment in the Constitution. So... I wonder how this is going to be taught in law schools and in, in universities. Um, I remember I was teaching uh, during the Clinton impeachment. I gave a whole seminar on the Clinton impeachment. And every time there were major news events involving the Constitution, I would give a seminar, sometimes just a non-credit seminar, voluntary for people to come in, sometimes what was called a freshman seminar, again, non-credit. But I would teach about current events and what the constitutional issues are. And back in the Clinton impeachment, you know, you would have big debates about whether or not perjury about a private sex act that took place in the Oval Office was or was not a high crime and misdemeanor. Was it a low crime? Was it a crime at all? Great debates. There should be great debates going on at Harvard Law School today about whether or not the speech that President Trump made is constitutionally protected. But it's not going to happen because... Many professors at Harvard Law School and many other law schools around the country signed a letter saying no rational scholar or jurist can even debate the issue of the First Amendment. That would be legally frivolous. So I just can imagine what would go on at Harvard Law School if somebody tried to uh, 
teach about that. Would would professors come in and say, no, no, you can't teach that. It's it's unreasonable. No reasonable scholar would do that. You can't say that the speech was constitutionally protected. You can't say that a president can't be impeached for making a constitutionally protected speech. No, that's unethical. That's unreasonable. We're not going to allow our students to hear that argument being made. That's what's going on at American universities today. Imagine a student. If I were a student at Harvard Law School today or Yale Law School or Stanford Law School, you name it, if I were a student today, I'd raise my hand and say, this is constitutionally protected speech. Would I be thrown out of the class? Would I be told I can't take the bar because I might engage in unethical conduct? Would I be told that I can't graduate summa cum laude and get a law clerkship because my arguments are unreasonable, that no reasonable scholar or jurist would make them? Is that education? Is that what you're sending your children, grandchildren, nephews, nieces, paying $60,000, $70,000 a year tuition to be propagandized by 144 constitutional scholars who are going to tell them that it's unethical and unreasonable to make an argument based on the First Amendment? Yeah, I experienced that. There was a period of time when if you made arguments that were inconsistent with McCarthyism, you could be hauled in front of the House on american Activities Committee. You could be called in front of the dean at Harvard Law School. Two brothers who allegedly had been members of the Communist Party years earlier, maybe they had or hadn't, and hadn't been willing to testify in front of the House on american Activities Committee. One of the brothers' grades were so good that he made the Harvard Law Review, and the Harvard Law Review expelled him. Said, you can't serve on the Harvard Law Review You said things, you believe things that we don't believe in. You believe in the left. You believe in in communism. And so they threw him off the Harvard Law Review. Would a student today get thrown off the Harvard Law Review if he came and said, look, I want to be on the Harvard Law Review, but I believe that the president's speech was constitutionally protected. No, 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 you, you, you can't be on the Harvard Law Review. Harvard Law Review is for reasonable jurists and scholars. 144 professors have declared you to be unreasonable and if you ever put that in a brief you'd be disbarred we don't want to have people who are disbarred serving on the harvard law review my god what's going on in american education and it's spreading new york times this morning will american ideas tear france apart french politicians high profile intellectuals and journalists are warning that progressive american ideas specifically on race, gender, post-colonialism, are undermining their society. There is a battle to wage against an intellectual matrix from American universities, warned Mr. Macron, the head of France's education minister. So it's not being limited to Harvard, to Yale, to Princeton. It's going all through the United States. It's going to France. Well, you know, maybe France deserves it a little. It started there. A lot of the arguments that are now in America started with people like Foucault and other French intellectuals and Derrida and others who uh, exported from France these kind of uh, post-colonial emphasis. I don't don't mind teaching stuff about that. Okay, you want to teach radical race theory or critical race theory? That's okay. You should have a course in that. Let students take it if they want to. You want to teach feminist theory? Fine. You want to teach gay theory? That's all okay. 
but don't make everybody take it. Don't make it a central part of the a curriculum. Don't ban dead white poets from the curriculum, dead white uh, politicians or statesmen uh, or women from the curriculum. Uh, don't, don't impose your parochial values on students who might want to think for themselves. Think for themselves. Oh my God, this is a university. You can't think for yourself. We have a canon. It used to be a white canon. Now it's an anti-white canon. Now it's an anti-American canon. Universities shouldn't have canons. They should teach students how to think, not what to think. Yeah, students should be exposed to great books and great writing, and we should be more inclusive. We should make sure that the great writings include great writings by women and by African Americans and by Muslims and by people from third world countries. Of course we should do all of that. Be inclusive. But you don't have affirmative action in the substance of education. You don't say since we taught only white poets and white history for so many years, now we're going to teach only minority poets, minority historians, minority history. No, that's not the answer. The answer is real diversity, real inclusiveness. Uh, the answer is to make sure that students are exposed to enough different ideas that they can form their own opinions, their own opinions. That's what education is about. That's what we ought to be encouraging in high school, in college, in law school, all over. But when 144 professors tell us what to think and tell us what we can say and what we can't say. We are approaching totalitarianism in education. And that is frightening. That is frightening. And I can't get a dialogue going uh, at universities. Um, I wrote an article about it in The Hill yesterday. Uh, I would have thought it would have provoked a lot of responses by academics. But I have to tell you, academics today are divided into two groups. Largely, I may exaggerate, but these two groups are really the dominant ones. The ones who agree with the political correctness, 144 professors say it must be true. There's no First Amendment issue here. It's unreasonable. It's unethical. We agree. So what's the argument? We agree. Then you have the other group, maybe as many as half, who don't agree, but they're intimidated. They're frightened. They don't want to speak out. They all call me on the phone. They say, thank you, Alan, for speaking out. You're the only one who's speaking out. Why am I the only one who's speaking out? Why am I the only one who's complaining about what's going on in education today at American universities now spreading to French universities and other universities around the world? What is going to happen? What are our future leaders going to be like if they're exposed only to these theories, only to these approaches and not hearing conflicting views, and it's the fault of those 144 scholars telling us what to think and what we can't say and what we can't think. So I'm not going to let go of this issue. My colleagues at universities may want to let go of this issue, but they're going to hear from me on this issue in every opportunity I have because it's really scary when our future leaders are being indoctrinated, propagandized, and not educated. So I want to hear from you. Uh, and I want to hear from you about the trial. Uh, listen today. It could be an educational experience. Fortunately, the two lawyers who are representing former President Trump are brave. 
I wrote a piece saying, I'll defend you. I'll support you. If they come after you, if they come after your bar license because you made an argument on the First Amendment, I'm there for you. And whether it's because they're bold and brave or because they know I'm standing behind them, they're going to make those arguments today. And you should listen and make up your own mind. Maybe you'll agree. That's okay. That's okay. You may agree that the arguments were not strong, were not powerful. Maybe they're losing arguments. But you have the right to decide and they have the right to make that argument. These 144 professors have undercut the adversarial system. They've said, you can't make that argument. Of course you have to make that argument. Not only can you, you must. They've undercut freedom of speech, saying, we're going to call you unreasonable. We're going to chill you. We're going to not let you be hired uh, as a professor. We're going to not promote you. We're going to not let you teach this in your classroom because we don't teach unreasonable things. If no reasonable scholar, no reasonable jurist can believe it, it's a flat earth theory. Yeah, I agree that in courses on astronomy, people who believe in the flat earth should not be teaching those classes. It's interesting. I had a friend, great, great, great scholar, Stephen J. Gould, who was the head of the Department of Paleontology at, at Harvard. And he came to me one day and he said, I have the most brilliant applicant to study for a PhD in paleontology. His writings are off the charts brilliant. There's only one problem. He's a creationist. He believes all of this happened. He studies them. He studies the phenomenon. But he believes they were all put there by God. Can I bring him to Harvard? And I said, absolutely. Wouldn't it be wonderful for your students to be exposed to a brilliant creationist? Wrong, maybe, but brilliant. And sure enough, he came came to Harvard and he studied and he got his PhD under Stephen Jay Gould. I don't know whether he hid his creationism or whether he talked about it, but you know, we want people of diverse backgrounds and diverse views and diverse approaches. We want people to say, yes, there's a First Amendment issue here. Yes, he can't be impeached if he made a First Amendment speech. Let's hear the other side, too. No, no, it's not covered by the First Amendment. He's the president. Presidents are different. No, it was an incitement, not an invitation. No, even if it's covered by the First Amendment, you can still impeach him. Fine, make those arguments. I would never sign a letter saying those arguments are unreasonable or unethical, even though I think they're wrong. Are you so unconfident about your ideas that you have to ban the opposing ideas? That's what that letter does. It bans opposing ideas. It says they're unethical to be presented by lawyers and they're unreasonable to be presented in class. That's censorship. That's chilling. And that's just wrong just wrong. And I'm going to keep saying this until we get a debate going on this issue. Right now, the response has been silence, not on this show, not from my listeners, not from my viewers, but from many on the Harvard and other faculties that don't want to engage on this issue. I have challenged anybody who signs that letter, come on this show, debate me. If you don't want to come on my show, I'll come on your show. I'll come on a neutral person show. We have to debate these issues. The core of America's freedom is freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of debate, not statements saying that the opposing point of view is unethical, the opposing point of view is unreasonable. So let's hear what you have to say about what's going on in American universities, what's going on in Europe today, what will be going on in the Senate today. And what is the likely result? Follow the trial. Listen to 
the arguments, come to your conclusions, and call The Dirt Show. Okay, let's have our first caller. My name is Mark Hubner, commenting on 144 legal scholars are wrong. If they deny the validity of one part of the Constitution, aren't they denying the validity of their right, constitutional right, to make a comment? Look, the implication is clear. If they have the right to tell us what we can say, what's ethical, what's reasonable, then 10 years from now, others will have the right to tell them what's reasonable and what's unethical. I lived through that during McCarthyism. I don't want to ever live through that again. Left-wing McCarthyism is no better. Indeed, it's far more dangerous than the form of McCarthyism because it's done by people who are respectable and respectful and people that we know and like uh, and people who are trying to do good things. And so it's much more dangerous than the old form of McCarthyism. All right, wonderful Wizard of Law. This is Rich from Illinois. I believe when you're talking about green, let's run a, an opposite hypothetical. Let us imagine that she is right, that there is a Jewish space laser. We know there's not, but imagine that she were right, and what she was saying was so far against what was considered the norm, what was considered, uh, you know, like somebody in 1930s Germany saying, oh, Hitler is going to exterminate all the Jews. Oh, no, he's not. Look, he's really good with small children and dogs. A person like that would never do such a thing. It was so against, you know, something like that being so against the public zeitgeist, we would want her to have those protections. And also, as loony as her theories were, Whatever she was said, she said prior to being elected, you have to figure that as being part of the mandate that her, her constituents sent her to Congress mm-hmm. with. So we cannot say that, okay, she's a Looney Tunes, her, people, her constituents, the power of which our government is, derives from the people, it is... They, the power sent this representative with her Looney Tunes ideas. They endorsed her Looney Tunes ideas. I, I don't think it's, it's quite right to, as much as I agree that she should be, again, as a matter of law, I don't think that it's correct. Look, I agree with you for the most part. I would not have denied her uh, the right to run for Congress or serve in in Congress, um, it's a debate whether she should be on committees or not. Those are discretionary. But um, I do think that uh, there are other Looney Tunes in Congress. I mean, if you look at Congresswoman Waters uh, urging her her constituents who vote for her to confront people at dinner and disturb their dinners and disturb their families, that's, that's pretty Looney Tunes as well. And so um, you have to have a single standard. I agree with that. Hello. Um, I've heard your arguments and defenses against the ongoing impeachment of former President Trump. Uh, you've discussed uh, the First Amendment um, and illegal impeachment of, of an ex-president. Uh, the Senate has no jurisdiction over a private citizen. Uh, the Chief Justice is not presiding over the trial as mandated by impeachment law. And you've uh, cited precedent from the Brandenburg and Bartlow trials. So... Uh, other than straight partisanship, us versus them, or Trump bad, us good, 
can you tell me how any reasonable senator, judge, or lawyer could possibly vote under oath to uphold the Constitution or a conviction in this case? And um, is there any recourse against those who vote for a conviction in spite of precedent and their oath to uphold the Constitution as written and not loosely interpreted? Thank you. There's actually a double oath the senators have to take if they sit on an impeachment trial. They take the usual senatorial oath to uphold the Constitution, but they take a special constitutionally mandated oath to do justice. And I think they are violating that oath if they vote to convict. Look, the argument they make is this. The president made a terrible speech. He shouldn't have done it. I tend to agree with that. I don't think the speech was a commendable speech. And uh, the speech may have led uh, some people to engage in acts of, of violence, but that's protected by the Constitution. But the senators who are voting for it say we can't tolerate speeches like that, which led to what went on in the Capitol. That's their kind of political view. Constitutionally, there's no basis for a conviction in this case. And what I think we're seeing happening is what Hamilton described as the most dangerous, the most dangerous thing, and that is impeachments and trials turning on who has the most votes, rather than on the constitutional criteria, the guilt or innocence of the person being tried. It's Hamilton's nightmare. If I were to write a book about impeachment now, I think I would title it Hamilton's Nightmare. It's what he thought was the most dangerous thing possible. And so the way to fight it is in the court of public opinion and at the ballot box. No, it can't be fought in the courts. Uh, Under the Constitution, the Senate and the House have the power to do what they're doing. They don't have the power to act unconstitutionally. And I do think there would be occasions where a court might step in, for example, if they tried to impeach a president on the grounds of maladministration or on the grounds that he was a Muslim or a Jew or or African-American or a woman. Um, uh, Obviously, the courts would step in there, but I don't think they're going to step in if um, people argue that they exceeded their authority under treason, bribery, other, other high crimes and misdemeanors. So the answer to democracy is in the court of public opinion, in the ballot box, and on The Durst Show. Here you get to express all your views. And so when you come back tomorrow, you'll have heard some of the trial. We'll talk more about the trial. We'll talk about other issues in the news. But you'll always have your voice. We will always have the wits on The Durst Show from your point of view, which will never be censored on The Durst Show. An important part of the Deer Show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24-7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short, and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.